Hello everyone, my name is Reese Garlinski, and this is Young History, episode 124 on Ecuador. The capitalist country is Quito, and the name Ecuador actually comes from its location on the earth. The name Ecuador means equator in Spanish, it's kind of like the term used for land of the equator, and has been adopted by this land because this is one of the few nations that is directly on the equator, and it's a big part of their culture and things that have happened in their history to do with the equator. And speaking of kind of facts about the equator, is something I learned from my mother, who's a flight attendant and actually traveled to Ecuador, is that if you are north of the equator, in the Western Hemisphere at least, and you flush a toilet, the water will go down counterclockwise. If you do it south of the equator, it'll go down clockwise. Now in Ecuador, since it is one of the few places on the equator, if you place a toilet directly on a spot marked as the equator and flush, the water just goes straight down because there's a net neutral gravitational pull. So that's a cool thing I like to mention when I bring up Ecuador, just because I think that's unique. And some other facts are that Ecuador has actually had 20 constitutions, and that is the second highest amount in South America, behind only Venezuela. Ecuador is also one of the few megadiverse nations on Earth, and it has almost 20,000 species of plants, over 1,500 species of birds, more than 840 species of reptiles and amphibians. It also has 341 species of mammals. So just a crazy list there, and... You could see it because it's a big part of the tourism, how beautiful this country is, and it does have some access to the Amazon rainforest. So all of this is just gorgeous. And the final fact I'm going to give is that for decades, Ecuador has actually been the leading exporter of bananas in the entire world. The country exports 4 million tons of bananas every year, which is ridiculous. So all these things are very cool and they're fun, but what's more fun is history. So we're going to get right into it. And I want to say thank you all so much for tuning in, and I very much hope you enjoy. So, one more time, my name is Reese Garlinski, this is Young History, and this is Ecuador. I hope you guys enjoy. Our origins begin at the last ice age when a lot of the ice that was across the world started to thaw and people were able to use the Bering Strait to cross into the Americas. Some of these people were able to migrate further and further south using canoes and land paths to get to the place that is today, Ecuador. One of the first cultures to pop up here was the Valdivia culture, which emerged around 3500 BC as one of the first real civilizations in this region. They were great ceramics crafters, and they lasted in this region until 1500 BC. Other cultures would pop up in the region, and they battled for lands, resources, and access to trade. Some of these cultures practiced artificial cranial deformation. And if you don't know what that is, it's kind of this practice where a child would be binded to a stone, or a stone would be pressed in their head and binded to them for a lot of their development, so that their skull would be elongated as they grew into adults. And the reason for this practice is unknown overall, but archaeologists predict it was either to symbolize prominence or to kind of show some kind of physical superiority to opponents of other tribes and people groups. Native confederations of different cultures were present in different areas across Ecuador because there was no actual governing body of a united state at this point, but just many of these different confederations of different groups that came together and had a similar cause and were willing to go and bend the knee to the same chief or king. Eventually, the Inca, which were started in Peru, moved their way into the land in 1463. By 1500, they'd established full control over the land that becomes Ecuador. 
The Inca instituted many new laws and practices. The most prominent influences were their practice of human sacrifice, which costed the lives of many indigenous Ecuadorians. There was the construction of massive stone structures or mausoleums, which still dot the land to this day. And there was a forced labor system that used the indigenous population as that labor force. Those all affected the country heavily and are reasons for later developments, such as the distaste for the Inca. And there was also one more thing that didn't sit right with them, that being the indigenous people. It was the enforcement of language. The Quechua language of the Inca was enacted as the main language of the region. And this upset the indigenous groups of early Ecuador. This was coupled with the fact that they were being used as forced labor to just manifest into a really huge distaste for the Inca. And it got so bad that not only was there resistance against the Inca, but there was also a growing support at the time for Spain to actually come in and take over. Speaking of Spain, they sent their first Europeans to Ecuador in 1526, and they were led by Francisco Pizarro. The Spanish brought smallpox to the region and were not welcomed by the Inca. Smallpox and other diseases murdered most of the indigenous population and heavily weakened the Inca. And because of that, Sebastian de Belacazar started to find victory because Sebastian was a Spanish general that conquered Ecuador, first Spain in the 1530s, and was able to establish this as another far-reaching territory of the king of Spain. And right after this, the Jesuits started to come in. They were Spanish missionaries that learned the native languages as an attempt to spread the word of God in the New World. And these Jesuits traveled into the Amazon rainforest and discovered more native people groups. Some were also very aggressive and practiced skull shrinking on their opponents. After a few years, Audencio de Quito was established over the region as a separate entity of the New World that was next to the greater powers like Brazil and Argentina, and it was created in 1563. The Quito region didn't have silver or gold, but was a great farming land. Textile mills were also built, and the indigenous highlanders were forced to be a part of this labor system, as well as the ones that were in the coastline and the lowlands. The next few hundred years would just be a continuation of this. The 1600s and 1700s are just filled with the indigenous people being used as a labor force, a lot of death for anyone who wasn't Spanish, and that sort of thing over and over. There was, of course, huge importation of slaves from West Africa and Southwest Africa because eventually so many indigenous people had died that the Spanish now wanted someone else to do the work for them. So they started to import slaves, and of course, South America is one of the places that received a lot of slaves, and despite Ecuador's size, it did have hundreds of thousands of enslaved people brought over. Things like that pretty much define those years before the 1800s, but in 1809, things would change. So it would be in this year that Quito became the first place in the Americas to try and achieve autonomous status from Spain. There was a lot of resistance against this, but on August 10th in 1809, Quito declared itself fully independent. Spanish colonial government leaders launched attacks and actually disbanded this breakaway government in less than a month, so even though there was momentum behind it, nothing came from this. But the 1810s were filled with conflict as there was a huge civil war between the pro-Spain and anti-Spain groups, and this ended up going back and forth, and there ended up being not really a peace, but more of just fighting fizzling out as a greater support for anti-Spain grew. And the fight against Spain actually began in 1820 in the city of Guayaquil. Guayaquil embodied liberal ideas of change because it was the HQ for the revolution against Spanish rule. And that would kind of be mirrored in its future where Guadalcanal is, where Guayaquil, not Guadalcanal, I'm sorry, I'm thinking of 
I think it's the Marshall Islands that has Guadalcanal. I'm sorry. Either way, my brain's all over the place. But it was in Guayaquil that a lot of fighting would come up, and it would be the whole reason Spain is battled. And I was going to say that throughout the future of Guayaquil that we'll see from this point, there's a lot of liberal-leaning ideas that come from this early history. So moves against Spain were made mainly under the leadership of Simón Bolívar, and the last Spain saw of Ecuador was actually at the Battle of Pinchincha in 1822. And it was here that a lieutenant under Bolívar named Antonio José de Sucre led eventual Ecuador to victory against Spain. And this meant independence from Spain, but not full independence, because in order to have this support from Simón Bolívar and the other powers, Ecuador had to agree to be part of Gran Colombia as opposed to being completely free. And so this independence from Spain happens in 1822, but this is not full independence yet. Peru and Gran Colombia clashed over border issues. The leadership of Bolivar also became questionable and somewhat authoritarian. The people of Quito were not having it, and the union ended. Specifically, on May 13, 1833, Ecuador seceded from the Gran Colombia unity. This meant that Ecuador was now truly its own free nation. It was renamed the Republic of Ecuador, or República Ecuador. In 1832, an archipelago to the east was claimed by Ecuador. Nobody at the time thought there would be any value in this island, so nobody challenged Ecuador to take it. This would eventually become the Galapagos Islands. And these islands actually became a huge point of interest to Charles Darwin, who studied the fauna and flora here to kind of place into a more contextualized manner what was happening with animals, how they developed, how they grew, because there's been so little human interaction on the Galapagos Islands, even to this day, that animals can be observed in a very natural setting, at least as much as you can, because a big thing with the contemporary science space is that even though we have these hidden cameras and stuff, we still feel like we may never know exactly what animals do when they're not being watched, just because there's some level of disturbance we bring by placing a camera there or something that might make them feel off, so... That's a deeper whole other thing I'm not getting into, but it's also a thing to keep in mind whenever we say stuff about how animals act in the wild because we're still kind of influencing them in a way that we might not know. But back to history. The next person that I'm going to talk about is Juan José Flores, who actually became the first president of Ecuador upon independence. He faced powers that tried to annex Ecuador back into Gran Colombia throughout his tenure, but was very successful in defending the independence of this nation. He was widely supported for most of his tenure, but tried to change laws for his own re-election in 1843. This was seen as unacceptable to the people, and a movement against him began. This became known as the March Revolution. The revolutions that challenged shady governments were present from the first one in 1843 until 1859. Also in this period was a pretty strict class system. In the highlands would be the rich elite that used the hacienda system to extract native peoples from their land and used them as the forced labor on owned plantation land. The elite class was heavily conservative and their counterpart lived very differently. The liberal side of the country was mostly on the coastline. On the coastline, the lifestyle revolved around maritime trade and the expansion of free trade across the region. This was a direct challenge to the style of economics that the elite had lived by in Quito. So the political lines were roughly Quito as the conservative capital and Guadalcanal as the liberal coastline capital. The differences between these two groups and their lifestyles would be the basis for the liberal versus conservative conflict that has happened throughout Ecuadorian history. Speaking of conservative history, Gabriel Garcia Moreno became president in 1861 and lasted until 1875. He was the founder of the Ecuadorian Conservative Party. 
He expanded the infrastructure, built railways, hospitals, and expanded urbanism across the nation. He attempted to make Catholicism a requirement for life in Ecuador. The way he did this was, was by granting citizenship rights only to Catholics. This was met with huge backlash. He was a controversial leader that many liberals saw as a dictator, and in the end, he was assassinated by liberal opponents from Colombia. This was a really bad one, too, because he was actually chopped to death with a machete on August 6th, 1875, and his body was desecrated as well. So the anger and energy that he created in this country was very scary. Eloy Alfaro was the opposite of Moreno because he was heavily anti-clerical. He led the Liberal Revolution of 1895 and became president for 11 years. He built the Quito Railroad that connected to the inland of the coast, and he weakened the power of the church and made the country a proper secular one. He also continued the expansion of the country through construction and the building of railroads, but some of his changes, including that anti-clerical one, were so radical that he was actually ousted by his own party and was then jailed. Eventually, he got executed for the way he ran, and because people were very radical and angry, he got executed on January 28, 1912. And he was defamated posthumously as his body was dragged through the streets and was seen bouncing off cobblestone floors. But even after his death, liberal power remained in the country. La Argola was a banking and agricultural group that influenced the country politically in the 1910s and 1920s. They were the commercial banking and agricultural sector of Ecuador and had a lot of voting power, so whenever they backed a candidate, it was likely that they would win. A big reason the La Argola had so much influence was because cacao had become a very prominent export, the most prominent export in the country, actually. So because of this, that meant that anybody who was a part of agriculture was a big part of the economy, and when these people came together, they were able to have a lot of voting power and influence over what happened. And at the same time, the sucre was the national currency, and its value really fell in the 1900s because the country had become very dependent on cacao, and when cacao harvest went really bad in the 1920s, it caused everything to go to hell. Protests and riots ended up gripping the nation because quality of life dropped so much in wake of the bad cacao harvest. And in 1922, the military came down hard on the protesters and killed hundreds. And because of the economic issues, the July Revolution began. The military took a direct approach to challenge the elite. The military would attempt to overthrow the government and challenge the elite class. They were unable to do either. However, a state bureaucracy was created and it changed the military to be a more reserved unit. And the military vowed to never repress the people and promised to be a reformed armed group, which was very odd because in South America, the use of the military as a political force was becoming very common at this time. Jose Maria Velasco Ibarra was a president that represented the instability in Ecuador heavily. He won five elections, but was ousted by the military four times for his actions. These actions alone contributed to a lot of contradiction in the country because he would suspend the civil liberties of the people and then would enact expansion for rights. So he just went back and forth and never had a clear ideal. And his multiple presidencies made the country very unstable because it was hard for anything to get done, and the economy was just always at the whim of the government making decisions and charging for things or not charging for things. And it was just a whole cluster while he was in power. And the instability actually led to more issues internationally. The Ecuadorian-Peruvian War began in 1941. Peru invaded the Amazon-Ecuadorian region because in the past, Ecuador was bigger and claimed this large region of the Amazon that 
Peru also claimed. So Peru launched an invasion into there, and the weakness of the Ecuadorian military was highlighted. The army of Ecuador was unorganized and allowed Peru to occupy the disputed region with relative ease. And when peace talks happened, Ecuador lost all of this territory to Peru and became a much smaller country than it was used to being. And World War II actually had a pretty big effect on Ecuador because there was a high demand for resources that were in the nation, such as different irons, things like bananas, surprisingly, and a lot of different foods in general. And so for a short time, this actually boosted the economy because Ecuador wasn't involved in the fighting, but they were involved in the business of war. Oil discovery occurred in the 1970s, and the economic growth from oil actually happened too fast in Ecuador. The structural systems of the country were not updated to have increased stability as the economy increased so much. It caused the economy to shift downward. Huge inflation occurred, and the gap between the classes began to widen. This period of economic trouble and the oil economy made life very hard for the lower classes because they were priced out of the way they were trying to live. The money from oil was also used to fund exploration into the Amazon forest that was still Ecuadorian. This expansion into the Amazon came with a lot of deforestation, which is the main thing people oppose it for. One of the unique events that happened here, though, was that uncontacted indigenous tribes met with Ecuadorians for the first time. Despite this, some of the struggle, and this is really unique because it's hard to imagine that you get to the late 1900s and there's still people in your country who have never seen you or contacted you because of the small area they live. So this was really cool. But despite all this, the main thing oil did was actually help Ecuador pay off a lot of its foreign debt from the wars it fought. And after years of political strife, Ecuador finally returned to a democratized government in 1979. It was led by Jaime Rados Aguilera, who became the president as a socialist Democrat. He made many promises for change and stability, but he tragically passed away in a very suspicious plane crash in 1981. To this day, there's been nothing revealed about the plane itself, but nobody feels that it was just a out-of-the-whim crash, and many believe that foreign governments had something to do with it, namely the U.S. or Europe. Many of the plans for the oil economy fell through because in 1986, oil prices dropped globally. The late 80s and early 90s saw political back and forth between liberal and conservative parties, but not a lot of significant change for the country as there were still a lot of the struggles from before because the oil government and all sorts of things like that created a pretty wide gap between the classes. And throughout the 80s and 90s, there's just a lot of struggle for people of the lower class and working class to get by. On top of this, an earthquake occurred in 1987, and this was a very unneeded enhancement to the struggle that people were already facing. And the earthquake not only destroyed a lot of physical land and caused death, but it also sank the economy into even deeper trouble. And this caused even more back and forth, even more protests. Everything was a big struggle because nobody had food, and the people who had food were hoarding things and were selfish and rich. It was a whole thing, and this lasted pretty much until the 90s. Another event that happened in 1995 was actually a more international issue than an internal one. In this year, conflicts between Ecuador and Peru brewed into another war. This time, it was called the Sinepa War because there was issues over this region called the Sinepa, which is on the border of Ecuador and Peru, and was one of the disputed claims from Peru from the last war in 1941. And this time, Ecuador was not going to stand for it and said that they had rights to this land, yada, yada, yada. And from January to February of 1995, a war goes on between the two over this land, and Peru actually wins once again and establishes further, more protected control of this region, and Ecuador just had to suffer the losses, deal with the cost of war, and accept that they gained nothing from going to war. Back home, 
Abdallah Bukrem was elected president in 1996. He made great promises to the country, but none of them were fulfilled. His presidency was marked by consistent economic strife and decreases in work opportunity. In 1997, the anti-Bukrem protests broke out nationwide. They were led by indigenous organizations and the working class. The reason that the indigenous challenged him so much was because of heavy encroachment on both indigenous land and the natural environment. A lot of the Amazon rainforest was being cut down and people were not standing for this. And eventually, Bukram was ousted by these protests and his vice president, Rosilia Arteja, became president. But her presidency lasted for only two days. This was a very short presidency because Congress decided that the head of the Congress, Fabriere Lacron, should be the president. And he was president until 1998. In 1998, Jamil Mahoud was elected and had to deal with the economic crashes, Ecuador market drops, and high inflation rates. For a time, Ecuador had the worst economy in all of Latin America. Because of this, the American dollar was proposed as a solution to the economy, but people protested this heavily. The people of Ecuador saw what dollarization had done to other nations because it meant that there was now this debt to the U.S. and a deep tie to this country that was not looked upon fondly by many Latin American countries, and for good reason. And the resistance to this was so bad that on January 28, 2000, the capital was swarmed by military members and the city was in gridlock. Protests were led by former Congress members and were backed by the people, and this coup actually ousted the president from power. So after the president was ousted, Gustavo Noboa was handed the presidency after the coup. Not only was he the leader of the coup, but he was the governor of the Guyanas in years past. And despite the reason for the coup, he went on to implement dollarization in 2000. And this year was an especially bad time to do this because the inflation rates were so high that the sucre to American dollar ratio was 25,000 to 1, meaning that people lost thousands when the country converted their currency. Austerity measures were also taken from the International Monetary Fund, and this made people protest once again because they just saw the government as this group that was now reaching out to these foreign organizations that were inherently going to take something back from Ecuador in the future. But despite all the protests against it, statistics show that dollarization did actually help drop inflation rates and for the time help the country stabilize. Next, we saw Lucio Gutierrez, who became president in 2002. He was one of the leaders of the coup that put Noboa on the presidency. He ran on a moderate platform, but in his presidency, he strong-armed the economy into unsupported austerity measures once again, and this time, protests broke out against this. By 2003, protests against the Gutierrez regime had spread across the capital. So by the end of this year, Gutierrez was no longer president of Ecuador. This made him the third president of Ecuador ousted in under eight years. His replacement was Alfredo Palacio, who was his vice president at the time. Palacio advocated for the advancement of social rights and the stabilization of the economy. He eventually hired Rafael Correa as his minister of finance. Correa was a U.S. educated economist. Together, the two men restructured the economy to use oil wealth as the payment for foreign debt and the rest of the economy to expand government reform and heal the economy. For his success as a great minister of finance, Correa became president in 2006. He was a humanist and a devout Catholic. He changed the country heavily. First, he made a new constitution. This came with increased funding for health care, expansion of rights for indigenous people, and he actually granted gay people the right of legal unity and also advocated for environmental protection policies. All these things very much appealed to the liberal side of things because not only were the indigenous and a minority group like the LGBT being helped, but things that were 
pro environment and things like that and things like that were not quite popular at the time. Correa went on to challenge the oil companies and use the oil wealth to help the lower classes. But this did cause some economic instability, so much so that there would actually be a recession a few years into his presidency. He faced many protests when people battled the government because of the recession. The protests were also led by indigenous groups who were angry at the fact that despite his plan for environmental protection, forests were still being burned and parts of the Amazon were being sold off to China. Korea also granted grant Korea also granted asylum to the WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange in 2012. Korea also granted asylum to the WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange in 2012. And with all the things that happened, Korea's status as a great leader is heavily debated. Many of his opposers see him as a liar that only used the platform to advance his legacy, while his supporters note that the changes in the economy and the assistance he brought to the lower classes was unique. Lenin Moreno, the vice president under Korea, became the president in 2017 after Korea's run. He became the only world leader in a wheelchair because he was paralyzed in a robbery before his presidency. Moreno started to repeal many of the changes from Korea's presidency. One of them was that he revoked asylum for the WikiLeaks founder, and this directly caused Julian Assange to be arrested. He also instituted a constitutional change that limited the presidency to just two terms. The approval of this policy meant that Moreno lost a lot of political support from the huge crowd that was behind Correa, because now Correa couldn't run for president again, even if he wanted to. In October of 2019, Moreno saw his approval rating heavily dip and protests gripped the nation. This was because he enacted financial measures to change the economy in a way that was backed by the International Monetary Fund. And of course, this upset the people because they just hate the idea of measures being put in place that take money out of Ecuador long term to heal it now. And people were already struggling. So you're just putting Ecuadorians in trouble by doing this and nobody was standing for it. These measures caused gas prices to skyrocket to a point where they were almost unaffordable for citizens. Moreno actually repealed this policy and started to climb back to wide approval so that he could get not only his presidency back on track, but Ecuador's economy back on track as well. In 2021, Guillermo Lasso became the first president in four election cycles that wasn't Correa or Correa-backed. This election was seen as free and fair and has helped Ecuador maintain some political stability. And before we get into the very end, I want to do a little bit on some of the culture within Ecuador because it's one that is very influential to the region and is very unique. Marimba is an Afro-Ecuadorian dance that has been a part of the culture for centuries. Africans that were enslaved got shipped to Ecuador and they brought Marimba with them. This style of music is meant to honor the old traditional dresses, style of dance, and instruments. One of those instruments being marimba, which is kind of similar to a xylophone. And there's also a lot of bongos involved in the music as well. The national music is actually called Basilo. It is a couple's dance that uses short steps very similar to the waltz and other ballroom things. And it's kind of a fusion of ballroom style dance, indigenous music, and South American sound. It emerged in the 1800s right alongside independence for Ecuador. And Pasilo was part of the celebration of independence. And is today performed on very special occasions to honor Ecuadorian culture and history. And the cuisine here mirrors a lot of South America with its focus on carne or beef as the main protein and wide range of pork products. And this is usually paired with different styles of rice and vegetables. But Ecuador is unique because it is one of the few countries in the world that eats guinea pig. This practice has been passed down since the first inhabitants, meaning that this practice is around 4,000 years old. And the dish is called cuy, 
which is usually eaten at festivals or special occasions. And despite the fact that many people abroad and inside of Ecuador do see guinea pigs as kind of a cute pet, there's still millions that see this as a reasonable practice because those little guys are protein-packed and apparently they taste delicious. So what are you going to do? And with all that being said, that gets us to the present, where currently Ecuador has a high level of human development because of the advancements that occurred in the 2000s. In the last few years, Quito has become a tourist destination that shows how safe visiting the area can be. Ecuador's political system is one of the stronger ones in South America because there are many clean elections that happen year in and year out, but there is still issues with due process and a lot of issues around the lack of protection for protesters and people using their civil rights to challenge the government. Ecuador has issues with the gap in wealth as there is a significant impoverished population, but the recent presidencies have attempted to improve the standards of life here. With that being said, that gets us to the very end, where I always like to leave it with a takeaway. And the takeaway with Ecuador is going to be continue to try different things. This country has seen many empires reign over it. It's had many up and downs. It's had terrible presidents, great presidents, dictators, murderers, all sorts of people run the country, come in and out of the country, push the country into a bad place, all sorts of those things. But the thing they've always done is try to adapt their system and change what it means to have an Ecuadorian government in order to fit the times. They've done that over and over, and Correa was a big change in the 2000s, and now he has caused another change where we see men like the current president, Guillermo Lasso, who's not similar to Correa. It's all sorts of things like that, where there's constant change, there's constant adaption in order to keep the country going and get it to a place now where it's improving far more than some of its neighbors are and far more than it ever has in its history. So I say you can apply that to yourself because no matter what your situation is, there is a solution. And of course, there are very, very bad situations to be in, very, very deep-rooted, terrible, awful, trauma-causing situations. But no matter what that situation is, there's a way out of it. And this is a quote I heard not too long ago that I want to repeat. And it's, even if something isn't your fault that it happened to you, be it a terrible circumstance, a family thing, it wasn't your fault that occurred. It is your problem because if it's negatively affecting your life, that's on you to figure out and fix, even if it wasn't what you wanted to be thrusted into. And I say that kind of connects with the message I'm trying to say here, because with Ecuador, a lot of their things were not their choice. They've had wars they lost. They were a colonial colony under Spain, and they've had a lot of leaders that didn't really try to change a lot of things. So no matter what situation is, no matter how much you have to do with it or don't, I kind of think think like Ecuador and think like the other quote I said, and no matter what's going on, keep trying solutions because if there's a problem in your life, no matter how it started, it's on you to find the solution, and if you're like Ecuador, you certainly will find that solution. And with all that being said, that is all. That is Ecuador, a very, very gorgeous, beautiful country that has had its up and downs but is trying really hard these days to maintain stability, democracy, and show the world how beautiful it really is, not even just geographically, but culturally, musically, all these beautiful things. And damn, their food is so good too. So all of these things are things you should consider when you think about Ecuador. You should definitely think about the history before you judge it. That's kind of the whole point of why I do this. And above all else, I hope you learned something. So thank you guys so much for being here. And one more time, my name is Reese Karolinski. This is Young History, and that was Ecuador. You guys have a good one. Thank you.